Welcome to episode 71 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to talk to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Have you had a good week, Tarek? Yeah, it's been pretty good. Weather's been... I don't know if you can hear that, but the rain coming down my window is... I'm sorry, you know what? That's the most boring, most <laughs> terrible British chat I've ever had. <laughs> Just in case you, you didn't know this was a British podcast, then <laughs> there you go. We'll talk about the weather. Although it is snowing in May, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, you been, Mark? Uh, yeah, good. I've been, You've been off work this week. I have been off work and I have achieved nothing. So <laughs> Standard week off work. Exactly. <laughs> I count that as a good week. Um, and you, of course, Tarek, have an exciting uh, exciting news for do. our so listeners. For any listener out there who is looking to try and uh, find a new competition to enter their book, uh, I would highly recommend the Capital Crime um, competition, which is for unpublished authors. Um, deadline is later this year. Can't quite remember. Yeah, we'll check the website. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm on the judging panel, so... If anyone wants to uh, to be successful, you know they know what they have to do. Mark. <laughs> Don't worry, no one gets in touch with us ever. Send so. me a question. <laughs> exactly. First one to send me a question gets a guaranteed ten out of ten. But yeah, no, it, it sounds like a great competition uh, to be to be part of, uh, and uh, it'll be interesting being a judge as well. I'm sure. Yeah, no, I don't really know what I'm doing on it, so it'll be quite fun to <laughs> quite fun to, to try it all. But yeah, I think it's a great way for folks starting out to try and get to get out there and I think the prize is a thousand pounds and um uh like a publishing deal or a first choice publishing deal with Amazon so it's a, yeah, it's a good awesome. prize and it's definitely worth worth trying yeah so do check that out we'll put a link in the podcast description actually so yep. that you can find that easily um but this week's episode we have a great guest as usual as always we are chatting with this week Helen O'Hara who from uh, Wikipedia, I can see she's a former member and violinist of the band the Dexys Midnight Runners, um, which is quite interesting. All right. I, I hadn't realised that much. Is um, that true? Well, technically, yes, but I think there's a different Helen O'Hara. Um, <laughs> I'll be looking at the wrong one. <laughs> so Helen O'Hara Brackett's journalist is actually a British film critic, um, known for working for Empire, of course. Uh, she studied law, like like us, Marco, mm-hmm. and, and escaped it very and quickly. Like us, very quickly tried to escape it, yeah. And uh, she um, started working for Empire in the intern uh, role, yeah. and very quickly rose up the ranks. Well, yeah, we we talked to her about that, about how she uh, got that internship role and what it involved, um, and, and you know how she sort of learned on the job about writing reviews and. I think there is a real skill in, as she says in the podcast, being able to write uh, not so much the long-form reviews, although that obviously is a skill in itself, but writing reviews for films that you've only got 130 words to tell people about the film, who's in it, and whether it's good or bad. is, is that you know It's quite a difficult skill to master that. So, and yeah, it definitely. really must hone your writing quite a lot. For sure. And she's she's seen a massive success with Empire. She's contributed to the BBC, to the Guardian, Independent. Um, she had a couple of books out, which is 
we talked to her about. The first one was Ultimate Superhero Movie Guide, mm-hmm. which came out in 2020. But very recently, she's had Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, um, which is a really interesting book. We chat to her a lot about it in the podcast, about the role that women have had way back at the start of silent movies onwards. And it's a, it's a really great chat. Yeah, no, it, we do. We really get into the, the, the meat of, of that book, actually, and sort of veer off the, the writing side of it a, a little bit just to chat about films and stuff as well. Yeah, so it's a film-centric episode. It is a film-centric episode. Um, and we even get her... Uh, she had just watched Zack Snyder's Justice League uh, the night before, so we get her, her views on that uh, at the end of the podcast. So uh, we'll get straight into it after... Uh, a quick advert for our page one notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to tell you about next week's exciting guest as well absolutely but for now on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear well we all know the best advice for a writer is Right. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? probably did um, but I didn't think it was a sensible or realistic option so I was quite sensible and realistic at one point in my life sadly that was long long ago and uh, and I, I actually trained as a lawyer instead so I, I went to law school uh, qualified technically as a barrister and then immediately gave it up because I was hating it so much I was just really <laughs> bored and and then you know the, the dream was still kind of film writing uh, yeah. would, would, would have been good but I was again, kind of trying to be semi-sensible even then. And I was kind of looking at law reporting and and government legal service and things like that and thinking maybe I could move sideways. Um, and it was only while I was in the middle of that process that an internship came up at Empire. And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've got to give that a go. I, I, I read the website every day or I read it every day at that point. I read the magazine every month. 
you know, that I don't have any qualifications and I don't have any experience, but it, I, this is the time in my life where I can give this a go. So, so yeah. Um, so anyway, that's all a long winded way of saying I definitely knew I wanted to, I, I loved movies and I'd kind of made it my mission in my teens to learn about movies mm-hmm. and kind of watch all those greatest film lists and stuff like that. But I didn't think it was realistic until it really happened. Yeah. We we share your pain on the law front because Tarek and I were both <laughs> well. Tarek is still a lawyer, and I have actually gone into the legal writing side of things. So there you go. So oh wow! We're a, we're we're a step behind you in terms of escaping from it, but <laughs> we're doing our best. Unless, of course, my boss is listening. In which case, Elaine, I love the law. Wherever it's been, let the record show that we're recording this after working hours. It's all legit. <laughs> um, but. Um, so how did you end up getting the intern position at Empire? Was it just an application? And- yeah, well, it was an application and then uh, an interview. And I remember uh, I thought like the interview was just exciting to be there. I genuinely was just excited to be in the building. And uh, I had quite a nice time and we, we liked, you know, we liked all the same stuff and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I remember like at one point they asked me, what's your favorite TV show? Or what, James actually asked me, what's your favorite TV show? And Catherine, who was then the editor of the website, went, oh, for God's sake, we've asked everybody that today. And asked a different question instead. So even though I wanted to shout out, it's the West Wing, I didn't get the chance. Um, so, uh, so and, and actually that became important because they initially chose somebody else for the job, or at least Catherine wanted somebody else for the job who had said the West Wing, which was the correct answer as far as they were concerned, because everybody was obsessed with it at the time. And um, and then th- that guy basically didn't get the job. And I was, because James had a veto and he didn't like him. So I ended up as the compromise candidate. So basically they, they both vetoed each other's favorites. And I was the, <laughs> I was the lucky recipient then of the, of the placement. So that was a three month placement. And then they asked me to stay for another three. And then they asked me to stay for another four until a, a new scheme started for new kind of trainee writers. And then they asked me to apply for that. And then that was six months of training, one day a week and four four days a week in the office. And then there was another six months probation after that. So after 22 months, <laughs> I got a permanent position and I was there for another sort of nine years or so on staff. And I'm now a kind of glorified freelancer so i'm editor at large which means i have that tie to empire and to the mothership um but also kind of write for other people as well and what was the you know during that 22 month stretch mm. um you obviously you were a lawyer you've done a lot of writing in your in your job and in, in uh kind of universities um, but what was it like in in that in that stretch what, what did you learn there that you hadn't learned oh gosh a lot yeah i, I finally got um receive straight in my head which I've always had a bit of a blind spot for spelling <laughs> I, I I will be honest like I, my spelling and grammar and punctuation are pretty good but I had a couple of blind spots that were beaten out of me um horde and horde was another one and it's I finally nailed um I had to learn to write short sentences now in empire we're not terribly good at the very journalistic craft of writing very short snappy sentences and paragraphs like you see on the BBC website where the, every mm-hmm. paragraph is about a line and a half long but even for empire standards, you know, lawyers write incredibly long run-on sentences that border yes. on garble. And I have, of course, was in that habit, so had to get out of it pretty darn quick. So that was that was one of the big challenges. And then I remember sort of having to uh, funny up my writing. Obviously, you know, I, I almost set myself quite artificial targets at first. I would try to say something that at least amused me. I don't know if it amused any readers, but something that at least amused me. 
every paragraph, whether that was a funny bit of wordplay or an actual joke or a kind of observation on something I was writing about, like something just to kind of liven things up. So because I would be writing news stories every day for the site at that point. And then I did a lot of transcribing of other people's interviews and editing of interviews down to a sort of reasonable website length. That was incredibly helpful. That was really, really helpful in terms of just learning to condense, learning what was important, learning what was important to keep. You know, there are some ums that you actually want to include Mm -hmm. in the transcript because they kind of affect what the person's saying. And there's some which you absolutely don't. And it's just kind of learning the difference between the two. So that kind of thing was really valuable. And of course, also transcribing other people's interviews was actually really helpful because that's how I kind of learned to, to start knowing what questions to ask. So yeah, it was, it was a really, I'm not saying I was thrown in the deep end because they did hold my hands, as it were, you know, and they did give me a flotation device or whatever uh, to extend the metaphor. And I did make lots of cups of tea and I did send (laughs) out competition prizes and do that kind of drudge work. But I did get to write uh, pretty quickly and I did get to a point pretty quickly where they trusted me to go and cover, you know, premieres or go to smaller junkets and things like that. And that was that was really, really valuable and really, really good. And we kind of. There aren't a lot of those kind of opportunities in journalism right now, just because people don't have the, the the funding to pay for someone to be in and pay them a living wage, which I think is important um, for several months at a time. And, you know, it would be great if we could get back to that, because I think it's an incredibly, incredibly great way into the profession. So, yeah. Uh, and when you were first doing these, um, you know, interviewing a movie star or, or mm-hmm. going on to a set or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, were you overawed or, or did you just take it in your stride? How did you deal with I that? Was, I was definitely like a thrill to be doing mm. it, like really, really pleased. Uh, but I mostly didn't get massively starstruck. And I think it's because certainly at that point, the media landscape was such that I could get my feet wet in, in a way in, in quite limited ways. So there were a lot more press conferences that we used to attend uh, for the website. We would do back in those days, we would do round table interviews, which we don't, tend to do anymore you know it tends to be one-on-one kind of interviews and of course I do red carpet premiere kind of stuff where you're only talking to somebody for two minutes and you hope that there is a limit to how badly you can screw up in that time you know so so I mean I was literally on my first full day in the office I was sent to interview people on the red carpet of Peter Pan the 2003 Peter Pan with Jason Isaacs so I was talking to like Jason Isaacs and Olivia Williams and people like that on my first day But they were incredibly nice, which also helps. You know, it wasn't like I was being thrown in there with somebody famously difficult to mm-hmm. interview. Uh, and uh, and like I say, it was on a red carpet. So there was somebody there who could usher them on if I, you know, was was super incompetent, which I may well have been, but they didn't let it show, God bless them. So that was nice. Um, and and looking at the, at the writing that you were doing at that point, um, you know, it was... In, in terms of the planning, how how do you plan out an article? Because when you're, I suppose maybe it's easier, I guess, if it's an interview or something. But if you're yeah. doing a kind of um, a preview or or a review article, how would you go about planning that out to 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 to, to see it? Well, so I, I started writing reviews a little bit later, so that kind of helped. First of all, I was writing a lot of news stories, so there you know, it's kind of instinctual. You kind of know what the point of the story is and what the information is that you have to convey. The the, the hard thing at that point was trying to get the Empire voice quite right, because even though I'd been reading it for a long time, and I think my my sample pieces that I sent in with my interview had been fairly strong, 
it's still about learning what um what the what's really important to convey but also because we weren't obsessed with seo Mm -hmm. issues of search engine optimization in those days we would have like nonsense in our articles we had a whole collection of animals that were like sammy the movie news squirrel and yoda the movie news jedi and all these people and like if it was a really slow news day we would literally have these characters popping up in our news stories and just write nonsense (laughs) we wrote a story about um Pride and Prejudice in the style of the opening paragraph of the book. You know, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a studio in possession of a classic property must be in want of a star or something like that. You know, so we would do these crazy things. So it was kind of coming up with those was was a bit of a challenge. But news itself provides a certain yeah. level of, of structure to a piece. For the interviews, it tended to be a, a bit more kind of, uh, again, pretty instinctual because you're boiling down what's there and trying to keep the the bits that are interesting and lose the boring bits essentially uh and so the real learning curve was when i started writing reviews so i I spent about year and a half two years empire as the reviews editor and that was a huge learning curve because i was doing much more editing of other people's stuff which is a great way to learn but i was also having to write far more reviews so i'd I'd obviously this was not my first two years empire Mm -hmm. i'd done a bit of work first but writing reviews and then having to concentrate on writing reviews for that period was really helpful because I genuinely think if you can write a, a, a good review in the sense of well-written, mm-hmm. not in the sense of positive uh, review in 130 words, which is the length of the smallest ones at Empire, then then you've kind of got something. Then, then you've kind of got a certain level of competence as a writer. And that was a, a, a real skill to learn. Boiling down your thoughts to that level, trying to get in, again, something clever or funny or interesting in that space while also giving your position on the film, while also explaining what the film is mm-hmm. and who's in it and who made it. That's a real, real skill. And that that really did take me quite some getting used to. And, and I was just lucky that I had a great group of colleagues at Empire who, you know, did correct my work at first and did talk me through these things. And, and that was incredibly helpful. And with the reviews as well, obviously the, the individual reviewer is is normally named as well. So it's presumably mm-hmm. it's their rating. But is there ever any discussion? You know, if it's a if it's a big film, is there discussion amongst the staff to say you're given that five yeah. stars? Really? Or? So the the ideal scenario, certainly when I was doing it, was that a bunch of us go and see a film, right? And then we discuss it and sort of have a position on it. And then whoever feels most strongly about that position sort of writes the review. So that's not always how it's able to happen. For example, when The Force Awakens came out, it was press day and they would only let one person go to the early enough screening to get it into the magazine before going to press. And, uh, And that was me. And so there was no one to talk about it to. And this was a very high pressure situation, obviously. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but Empire did occasionally get Star Wars wrong in the past. And <laughs> I don't want to mention Chris's five-star Attack of Clones <laughs> review, but it did happen, you know. So so that was really genuinely quite nerve-wracking, was like a situation like that where you are completely on your own. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the cases where we have ended up with reviews sometimes, which we perhaps, a majority of us, do not always agree with, let's say. Um, but, you know, it's at the same time, it is the reviewer's opinion and so at a certain point you have to back up your reviewer so it's it's a strange 
uh, it's a strange situation because Empire doesn't use the word I in reviews. It's mm-hmm. never a sort of first person thing. It's always the sort of royal we. So we do stand over them as a magazine, even when we're kind of wondering what happened to our colleague that day and who spiked his punch, <laughs> you know. So. I mean, if if you're doing a piece on like a movie or like an actor, mm-hmm. is there like a limitation at all of putting you what you can and can't see perhaps by the by the studio or by the actor who says, you know, you know or I don't want this to be mentioned? Is that... Something you have to kind of work around? Um, I can't think of many such cases. Um, I mean, obviously, there's actors who will refuse to to answer questions, I guess, or kind of just more often not refuse dead on, but just kind of talk around the subject. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we're in quite a lucky position at Empire, which is that we don't tend to write about anybody's personal life. So there's mm-hmm. much yeah. less cause to have those kind of awkward moments. And, and I... This is my perception. This may not have happened, but so I went into once to do a sort of video spot with Jennifer Aniston for a film. I don't remember which one. It might have been the breakup, but it was one that kind of era. It was shortly post Bradgelina. Mm-hmm. And I went in to do this five minute video spot and they said, this is Helen from Empire. And I swear I saw her shoulders drop about an inch like, oh, thank God. Someone who isn't going to ask me about the fucking divorce. You know? <laughs> so so I, I, I think... I always felt quite lucky about that, especially if I was on a press lineup standing next to somebody from, you know, one of the tabloids or something who had to ask about their love life or whatever else, because that just always seemed incredibly miserable. Like, I don't want I don't want to ask people that I don't Mm -hmm. even want to particularly know that stuff about them. Um, and, And it just seems incredibly intrusive, like they're there to celebrate their new film and the work and whatever else. And all you want to know about is what happened when their boiler blew up last week. I mean, get a grip, you know? <laughs> I suppose that's different between, I guess, Empire and um, some yeah. OK magazine or something. You yeah. know, you, 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 you read Empire for the film and the movie news, etc., not for the kind of star's personal life stuff. Exactly. And, and it, look, it is kind of a privilege. You know, I'm lucky that I got in to Empire that that was the place where I started off because I know a lot of journalists like start off on these tabloids or these news agencies sure. and they they are sent out to do this and it is their job to do this and I always had incredible um you know sympathy for them and to a certain extent admiration of their sheer guts um mm-hmm. but I don't think I'd want that job I, no. I just I, I really don't yeah and, and I wouldn't be able to do it oh, God. obviously as you said you you had the chance to get the internship and and work up through that, but those sort of opportunities aren't that widely available just yeah. at the moment. I mean, if someone wanted to get into it now, is you know posting stuff online, posting blogs, reviews, things like that, would that be a valid route into it? Or what what advice would you give someone? It, it can it. be. I know a very successful film writer um, who did start off with his own blog. Um, of course, that was in a slightly different area. He's, he's obviously been doing this for a while now. But um, but he did start off with his own blog and he he worked it hard enough and pushed it enough that he was getting great opportunities to interview people and, and you know, um, turned it into a sort of professional outlet where he was getting the celebrity interviews and the red carpets and so on. That can take a lot of effort and, and a lot of luck, I think, and is probably less um, frequent than it used to be. That I know people nowadays who got into this through, um, I mean, they wrote for free, to be honest, for, for a certain amount of time. There are a couple of movie websites. I don't want to name any names in case they've changed their policies recently, but certainly they used to 
publish people and they wouldn't pay them, but they would at least give them some kind of platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a way to get noticed and it can be a way to, uh, to establish yourself and to get sent to some junkets and to to start building up your credentials. Um, and there are now places which will make a point of hiring new writers. Uh, so Film Stories, for example, Simon Brew's magazine yeah. makes a point every month of, of publishing new writers, which I think is a great, great initiative. And, and he's doing really well for them. But the problem with a lot of, and again, not everybody, and I'm not saying this is a blanket rule, but I think the problem with a lot of places that have people write for free, apart from the fact that it's obviously exploitative, you know, you might write one or two pieces for free to show that you can do it. Mm-hmm. But after a certain point, they're just exploiting you for free work. Mm-hmm. The the other problem is that a lot of them don't edit you and you don't get the feedback and you don't get the kind yeah. of training up that is useful. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a real issue with... um with a lot of writers nowadays because they're not getting that that kind of career development and i don't know what the solution is i don't have a solution um i think what you're seeing that the people who are succeeding right now are just self-taught and they're doing brilliantly for it but i would like there to be a bit more kind of mentoring and stuff so i've done a bit of mentoring with with various sort of individuals but you know maybe we need a sort of industry-wide kind of more formal thing so there's some talks about that going on at the moment but it's a difficult thing to get people to, you know, commit the time and 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 find it to to find the people who, you know, ma- kind of match up with them. But yeah, it, it is difficult, and I would like to see, you know, some of those things come back. It's just, you know, the, the media industry is not on its. I mean, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing writing online. The trouble is, I think there's. <laughs> You know, anyone can start a blog essentially. So you can yeah. be sort of speaking out into the void. You could be writing the greatest yeah. things in the world, but but it might never ever be seen by anyone. That's, it, that that's the is a real, yeah, that is a real problem. I mean, look, the thing you can think about, you have to kind of do that for the love of it to an extent, mm-hmm. um, and and write it for yourself and write it as a sort of portfolio. So if somebody does want to look you up, then you have something very respectable to show for it. But you're right. I mean, a lot of them are just kind of uh, neglected and, and not read enough. Uh, I don't know. I, I think you can you can maybe help yourself by trying to get to some film festivals, whether real or virtually, write about stuff that isn't massively covered yet. Mm-hmm. And that might give you a little bit more kind of visibility on searches. But um, but I don't I'll, I'll be honest, I don't have a I don't have a solution. And again, your social media use might help. But I don't, again, it's not going to. It's not going to be a silver bullet necessarily. If people are still at college or university, then those can be, you know, college and university publications do sometimes get people into big junkets. They do sometimes get people to film festivals. You know, that can be a quite a good way to get noticed and kind of establish yourself. But again, there's a lot of people fighting for it. So I'm not saying it's an easy way in either. Yeah. And when you... When you first started uh, to work at Empire, um, I'm sure I read that you'd said that you were um, for a long time, possibly the the entire time, you were the only female writer there. Um, and yeah, was that, was that correct? And, is, and was that something that was Empire shared in common with a lot of other places at, at that time? And, and has that changed? Uh, I think it probably was, uh, and probably still is, if not exactly like that there were i should be clear other women working at empire so the picture editor uh was a woman uh still is albeit a different one and the uh, production editor is a woman um so they they do uh, certainly the production editor lizzie beardsworth does some writing she's a very good writer but that's not her sort of primary focus and the editor of the website when i started was a woman although she wasn't again writing full-time because she was in charge of the whole thing so for most of the time i was on the magazine yes i was the only woman on staff and then we had great freelancers uh, as well 
And that was kind of my experience of junkets and so on as well. It tended to be guys turning up. Sometimes if it was a rom-com, suddenly there'd be some women there and you'd be like, where did you all come from? Where have you been the rest of my life? <laughs> um, but generally it did tend to be mostly men. There, there are a few women I know from kind of the circuit who worked in TV or radio, um, but most of the print journalists, yeah, men. So I think that is beginning to change. I think it is getting better. I think it's also getting less white um, and slightly less straight, although there's always been a bit of a gay presence. Uh, but it, representation has been a real, real issue. Yeah, there has been a real lack of diversity. It's one of the things that I wrote about in my book because, you know, I think that reflects which films get treated seriously, which films get, uh, the, which subject matters get treated mm -hmm. seriously, which films are considered important, which filmmakers are considered important. Um, it's the ones who are kind of speaking to these white middle-aged middle-class men you know for for a large degree and while I love them some of my best friends are white straight middle-class middle-aged uh, middle men um you know they're not the only viewpoint in town and yeah. and that's that's what needs to change basically we just need more people of all sorts so I mean uh, before we talk about your latest book what was it that made you want to write because you've got women Again, women versus Hollywood but you've also written the ultimate superhero movie guide as well mm. um what made you want to start writing sort of more long form things well I mean I'll be honest it was luck uh it was it was something that I had obviously thought about and I didn't really have a particular idea for a long time and I didn't have the sort of uh self-confidence or arrogance you can choose which one you want <laughs> to think that I had necessarily a book's worth of information to say about anything so that was kind of the situation for a long time. I've had like ideas for fiction and stuff that I've kind of noodled away out and I haven't completed a single one of them. So they're still all up in the air. But um, but yeah, I actually got lucky. I, I I have always said that I think in this job, you 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 control how good you are and you can train yourself up and you can read all the things and you can work on your spelling and grammar and punctuation and you can work on how hard you work and you can work on all these things. And then you need to get lucky. And so I got lucky when I got that job at Empire. Um because I was the compromise candidate, as I say. And then I got really lucky um, with with the first book, uh, which was actually a book on the 80s, because a friend had been asked to write it. Another Empire freelancer had been asked to write it and didn't have time and suggested that they talk to me. So I, that was, it was pure kind of who you know, in a way. Although th this is something that occurred to me when I, when I went freelance, I was made redundant for Empire and... Um, I went freelance thinking that that would just be for a few months until I find a job. And then I've just loved being freelance and I've, I've managed to keep myself afloat and it's been great. But I would have told you, I would have sworn up and down the day I was made redundant that I didn't have a network and that I had, I knew no one outside Empire. And I thought that my only reputation was as Helen from Empire and that as Helen O'Hara, I had no profile whatsoever. And I would, it turned out that people I just considered friends and colleagues, that turns out to be a network. Who knew? <laughs> I genuinely didn't. So, um, so yeah, so Owen suggested me for, for the 80s book, um, which was fun to write, fun to research, uh, not something that was ever going to make me rich or probably was even worth the time it took to write it in the sense of financially, but it was, it was a great thing that I wanted to do. Same with the superhero book. Um, I probably knew more of that off the top of my head, I'll be honest, <laughs> because I've been writing about them so much already. But um, but it was a great thing and I was I was thrilled to do it. So it's really only with with this book that it's been more of a deliberate 
this is something okay. I have to say, mm -hmm. and I can write a book on this subject. And even then, it was freaking terrifying for the first several <laughs> for the first several months. So, I think I was maybe a little bit uh, more timid than I should have been, maybe. Um, and I think that might be a thing that happens when, again, you're not a straight white male, that you don't necessarily put yourself forward in the same way as some of them do. Not all men, but some of them do. Um, and I I think maybe I could have been a bit more, um, well, I could have pushed for it myself and could have tried and gone out there and pitched things. And I didn't really do that. So I'm still very bad at pitching. I still rely far too much on people coming to me and asking me to mm. do things. And I'm very, very, very fortunate that they do um, because I think otherwise I'd have out of trouble because I find pitching just emotionally draining because mm -hmm. I send a pitch and then I'm sitting there waiting yeah. by the inbox. Yeah. It's yeah. the worst feeling. It's the worst. <laughs> and it distracts me for the rest of the day. Yeah. Even though I have been an editor, I know for a, <laughs> for a fact that it is not personal. I know for a fact that them not replying instantly doesn't mean they don't like me and or my <laughs> idea. I know that because I have been that person and yet it's the worst. It's just yeah, every email that pings up, you're suddenly like, is that, is, is is this that it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then sometimes like when you're turned on for completely valid reasons, like we're doing that already, mm -hmm. it gets, it gets you obsessed for the rest of your day. Like, well, was I too slow? Should I have been faster? Mm. What was I doing wrong? You know, and it's like, no, they were just doing it already. It's not a big deal. So you have to build up a, I have a pretty thick skin in terms of criticism and, and feedback and all that kind of stuff. That's all okay. But I'm still really bad at pitching, <laughs> so yeah. So when it came to your to your book, did you did you mm. pitch them yourself, or did you have an agent at all, or did you just go to the publisher yourself? So I, after the other two books, um, they had been quite odd experiences because I hadn't. Um, there, there was kind of almost no feedback. There was almost no editing frankly, and and very little feedback on, on how the book was doing and everything else, um, just because the way the contract was was done. Mm -hmm. And I did not have an agent for those at all. And so I, I find out that another film critic that I know actually had a day job in publishing. And I suggested, I said to her, can we go out for a coffee sometime just so I can ask you how publishing works? Is this normal or has, has this been an odd experience with, with the other two books? So basically she invited me in to have coffee in her office and said, Maybe there's something we can work on together. So this kind of completely threw me for a spin. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't even like that hadn't even occurred to me. I just thought I would have a chat with her about how publishing works and then use that chat to maybe come up with something to pitch in the future. Um, so with that in mind, I then sort of spent a couple of days kind of, you know, footsing around and trying to come up with some ideas of things that they might want to publish. And they were all about women in film various different kind of approaches i was thinking of like maybe a hundred years hundred movies kind mm -hmm. of a thing or something mm -hmm. like that as well as what we ended up doing but yeah so i went in and, and just had a conversation with them and and pitched them this idea and that was the one that they that they kind of went for so it again it was serendipitous it was not a person i was considering a network it was a person i yeah. literally find out about after knowing her for about eight months that she was in publishing <laughs> and then was like, Oh, can we talk about this? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I know this sounds incredibly elitist and, and sort of London centric and, and certainly that's, that's part of it. I'm lucky enough to be on the ground here, but I think it's also the fact that I was, you know, I've now been in this business for 17 years. So people I have 
had as work experience people or colleagues have gone to all these other places. And and that's why I suddenly find myself with with all of these these ties to people. So I know it's not terribly useful advice because it's not terribly replicable if you're just starting out in the career. But um, but it really has come down to that kind of serendipity, you know, a, a lot of the time with me. It, and, it's yeah. it's something that actually, you know, even in even in sort of a novel writing, you know, a lot of authors have said does, and and certainly in things like comic writing and things. Oh yeah, uh, they, yeah. they're they're like go to, um, you know, go to book festivals, go to comic cons, go to these things, speak to people, get them, you know, get to know these people yeah. because then your name starts to get known and they know you and you can chat to them about something and something might come of that. And I think for a lot of writers, it's that that, that's quite a big step because naturally quite a lot of writers don't want to go to these big events (laughs) and chat to people they don't know and things, but clearly it it, clearly it helps. I mean, this is the thing. If I think about it as networking, I Mm -hmm. would completely freeze up, Mm -hmm. but you know, I, I mean, I've written a lot for the Telegraph, which is not a paper that necessarily represents my politics, but their art section, I think, is very good. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ended up there was because a friend of mine, a former Empire colleague, was working there at the time when the film editor complained that he needed a, a pool of new freelancers. And she literally said, here's my friend Helen, here's my friend Ollie, here's my friend, you know, and just yeah. named a bunch of people. Um, I would, you know, she's not a network person. She's just one of my best friends, but I was lucky enough that mm-hmm. we've all gone on to different things over the years. Um, and I just try and pay that forward as much as possible and try and do the same for other people. But yeah, it is ultimately about, I think I think you can't un- underestimate how important it is to just be nice to people, yeah. you know, and just, and just go out of your way to help people sometimes. Like one of my first jobs I got as a freelancer was from somebody who had done work experience at Empire years and years before, and had gone on to become editor of a website. And, you know, I had luckily been nice to him <laughs> when he was at Empire. And and so he thought of me when he when he saw on Twitter that I was going freelance, he, he instantly kind of, you know, came to me. So, you know, being being polite, being kind, being friendly to people is is a really good thing to do, like from purely mercenary point of view, as well as being good karmically and just <laughs> yeah. for your soul. Uh, but it, it, it kind of helps. But you do have to at least a little bit get out there and talk to people. And it's the yeah. worst and most difficult part in some ways of just like uh, put me in a room full of people I don't know and ask me to talk to them. It's, it's painful and it's difficult and it's hard and it still is, but it's, you know, it's usually a good thing to do. Unfortunately, yeah, You're almost creating the opportunities yourself. And then when they come to fruition down the line, you can take advantage of them. Cause I think, I think as you, as you yeah. say, if you don't try to create them yourself, they won't just happen. Yeah, they probably probably won't happen. Um, yeah. yeah, they they won't. I think it's I think it's um. Yeah, I, I don't even I don't even think of it. Not, none of this. If I'd thought of this as opportunities yeah. I was creating, I wouldn't have yeah. done it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Totally. But it's but yeah, it, it, it they kind of were in retrospect. I just I just kind of didn't know that. But it is it is you know it's just good to have friends and it's good to talk to people and and just you know, not be a dick. I think in any industry you go into, not being a dick is a hugely good piece of career advice. Like I know people think that, you know, that there's a certain kind of person who thinks that this is the way to show that you mean business and that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're focused on the job. And I just don't think it's good for you long-term. 
So no, in in any way at all. Um, but so tell us a bit about um, uh, your latest book, Women. Mm. I, I keep wanting to say Women Against Hollywood. That's the lawyer <laughs> in me. But <laughs> women versus uh, Hollywood. Uh, yeah, why, why did you want to write that one then? Well, so it was kind of my uh, basically my starting point, I guess, was was trying to understand what happened uh, and where why Hollywood became a male dominated industry, because at the beginning there were women there. There mm-hmm. were women directing and producing and having their own studios. Uh, there were women who were paid as much as the top male directors in town for directing. There were huge women stars. So sort of where did it all go wrong? You know, first mm-hmm. of all. And and this was at a time also in history where, you know, women's rights were a big thing. Suffrage was a big thing. Um, it was just about to be granted, in fact. So why was it that this brand new industry c- still couldn't escape the the old prejudices, you know? Uh, so so that was kind of the starting point. So I want but I wanted to be broader than that. Of course, I was laughably overambitious, like just <laughs> ridiculously overambitious because I wanted to kind of look through history and look at key er- eras. So the, the silent era, the studios, um, I wanted to look at censorship because that had a very deleterious effect on many women's careers. I wanted to look at the auteur theory. I wanted to look at um, the the kind of the movie brats in the 1970s and how this great revolutionary era somehow didn't include any women, mm-hmm. you know, and and just kind of look at that and then look at the big issues that we're facing nowadays. So equal pay, Me Too, um, the continuing dominance of men in criticism and awards and festivals you know, all of these kind of issues uh, and try and sort of form some grand unified theory of sexism in Hollywood, basically, <laughs> which was not a good idea. And, and, and I should have been a little bit more um, restrained because the, the research was an absolute nightmare. And COVID, of course, hit while I was still trying to research and closed all the libraries, which I can tell you right now is not helpful. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that was, that was kind of the, the plan. I didn't want it to be I wanted it to have a punchy title. Like, you know, I think my, my first, uh, my first draft of the title was Hollywood's War on Women and How We Win It. So I wanted it to be pretty punchy, but I also didn't want it to be like ranty or angry or anything mm-hmm. like that. Cause, you know, it's people being people. I don't think a lot of this is conscious. And then when I started the research, one of the things I was really keen to do was find the people who aren't in the histories. So all the black women, all the disabled yeah. women, all the, you know, LGBT women who just weren't in the picture at all because they just didn't conform to the ideal at the beginning. And like, for example, I didn't realize the full extent of how much um, the censorship uh, regime in Hollywood held back black women in particular. Right. Like that was devastating the chances of black women and and black men, but, but you know, mm-hmm. in particular black women who kind of face that intersectional problem. So so that kind of thing was... was um, yeah, really important to kind of really dig into because I knew obviously the broad outlines of this history, but uh, the detail was, uh, yeah, a, a lot of work to uh, try and fill in. And when when yeah. you're doing something like that, and, and you know you're researching such a vast amount of material there, how do you, you know, what was your approach for sort of deciding this stuff needs to be in and this stuff I'll leave out? You know, how how do you parse it down? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I sort of, uh, I, like I say, I had a broad idea of the history. So I had a broad mm-hmm. idea of the, the, the areas I needed to focus the research. Um, and then it was kind of trying to be led by what I found and, and be led by what came up as the most important 
and most obvious and most egregious cases, let's be honest. Like I wasn't going to look at the people who were mildly inconvenienced as far as possible. I wanted to talk about the the really kind of key moments. So um so yeah, it was it was having enough general knowledge to know where I needed more knowledge was was kind of the key with all of that kind of stuff. And I've been listening to on on the audiobook version oh, yeah. and it's it's a fantastic book and oh, thanks. and I think you kind of mentioned it there, um the the role that women had at the very start of Hollywood when mm. the studios were getting set up and I didn't know any of that and that was the role that they played at that part I thought was was something completely new to me and really yeah. interesting and and I suppose I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure you've been asked about this book a hundred times which is do you think comparing the history of Hollywood etc from then and looking at it now mm. do you think we're moving forward to the, I know we've had Me Too and yeah. Weinstein etc is this all a good thing in the sense of the overall picture of where it's headed? I think, yes, with caveats, right? So I think, you know, I, 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 you know, I talked a lot about those women in the, in the silent era and they were really important at the time and they were acknowledged kind of as leaders of the field at their time, but they still weren't a, a majority. You know, they were still a minority of people in Hollywood. Um, and we're still at kind of that point. We're getting, we've just gotten back to that point where there are women who are now able to succeed on a serious level and do great work on a big budget, um, but there's still a tiny minority. So, so female directors are still under 20% every year and uh, female leads are usually under 20% of Hollywood films as well. So there's still a really, really long way to go until you start getting something like parody. Um, and that's even again, without mentioning intersectional issues, which make it even worse. I think black women are well under 1% of, of film directors in Hollywood. And I think population wise, they're about 6% of the population in the U S so um so, yeah, so there's still a really long way to go. And I don't want to understate that. And I don't want to make anyone complacent because I think the thing that will absolutely immediately derail any progress we've made is complacency. Mm -hmm. The problem we have is that um, a lot of this has come about because people suddenly started paying attention. So, you know, the Sony hack was the first time that people had really concrete evidence of differences in pay scale, like specific mm -hmm knowledge of differences in pay scale um and uh, a lot of people didn't realize the full extent of me too until it happened i think most people certainly most men didn't have any clue of the full extent of that um before it happened and i think what's also come out of that that in particular me too in particular because a lot of really powerful women in hollywood started talking very honestly and very openly with each other in large groups for maybe the first time ever certainly the first time in nearly a century and they discovered that it wasn't a zero-sum game. I think there have always been so few great roles for women in Hollywood that there has been a tendency, I think, to play women off against each other. Because mm -hmm. if, you know, Julia Roberts gets that role, then that's one less role for Meg Ryan, you know? And, mm -hmm. and when the great roles come along, they all go for them because there is so much hunger and so little for them to, to sink their teeth into. And I think what happened uh, when they really got together and really started talking about this stuff is they stopped accepting that that had to be the case um, and that they started working a little bit more um, in a more focused manner, I think, to change that. So you already had some people like Reese Witherspoon had already mm -hmm. kind of started. Nicole Kidman actually had already kind of started, you know, developing their own projects, really trying to create great roles for other women and not just themselves. But I think that began this upswell of women producing for other women, stars producing for other actresses and seeking out roles for multiple women, 
Mm-hmm. Stick with me now. I know it sounds radical. <laughs> Multiple women in one film or TV show. I know. Um, dream the dream, guys. But uh, but yeah, th- this is the kind of thing that has come out of that. And that's where we're seeing, that's what, what gives me hope. Because I think that as those things succeed on TV and on, on the big screen, that begins to change the picture. I mean, Wonder Woman alone changed the picture for female directors. Mm-hmm. And it's not fixed it. But suddenly on the back of that, all of those excuses about women not wanting to make blockbusters and not being able to cope with blockbusters suddenly took this massive hit. And suddenly the studios had far fewer excuses for not hiring women for those movies. And that makes a big, big difference because it means, you know, if Chloe Zhao makes the Eternals for Marvel, that's what gives her the financial security to the go and to make Nomadland. Yeah. And we all benefit, you know, mm-hmm. if Chloe Zhao is making Nomadland, this is a good thing. So um, so it's those opportunities that women haven't had in the past. It's the, it's the next step up from the Sundance hit that the men were able to take and they weren't. And I think that's beginning to change. And they, you know, statistics literally show female directors create more jobs for women on set and they write, or they have more roles for women in their films. That alone just changes the picture or begins to. It is ridiculous that I think am I right in saying that um, only two women have won the best director Oscar or nom- nominate is there only one only one's won Catherine Bigelow in yeah. two thousand nine yeah yeah and and in fact and hardly any have been nominated whatsoever mm. um, so it, it just seems you know when you look at it in sheer numbers as an industry it seems so I, I know it's not great you know everywhere but things seem to be improving much quicker in other industries than it, than it is in yeah in that and is tv even slightly ahead of of film? oh yeah yeah tv's yeah. done a lot better with female directors mm. and and but again it's it's hard for them sometimes to take the lead that's where a lot of directors female directors went in the 70s and 80s they weren't finding mm-hmm. any joy in films and they went to tv and they did good work in tv and they're still doing great work in tv um but it's that next step up that they're not getting the chance that they're, maybe their male colleagues are getting sometimes. And and again, that's beginning to change. And we are seeing that. And we're seeing a bit more cross-pollination, if you like, generally, mm-hmm. I think, but men and women. Um, but it has been a particular hang-up about directors. Um, and it has, I think, a lot of it goes down to this idea of who we allow to exercise authority and who we kind of crown as great artists it's the same in you know other fields of arts there are not that many acknowledged great composers mm-hmm. who are women and, and again if composing is an area where women are wildly underrepresented on film but also outside film it's not a hollywood thing it's about who we spot who we consider an artist and who we're willing to allow to be an artist and who we're willing to support in creating their art so you know a lot of the female directors i spoke to for that chapter they talked about people interfering much more than they do with their male colleagues. Of course, there's always, you know, a balance between studio and director. But if you're considered a sort of auteur, then the studio, to an extent, is more likely to buy into your vision and kind of leave you alone, give you some credit. That credit never seems to be extended to the women. Um, it's, it's that kind of issue that, that's been a problem. Women haven't been given that kind of credit as an artist, and they have been sort of... Uh, undermined frequently on set they're they're not given the sort of support by crews by producers sometimes by cast members and male stars to experiment you know 
If you suddenly turn up on the day and you want to put your camera over there and you're a female director, your crew may decide that you're indecisive and don't know what you want. Mm -hmm. And if you're a male director, well, you know, we're all creating together, guys. Yeah. It's about the yeah. art. I think I'd, I can't remember if it was yourself who said it or if I read it somewhere, but it was, they were saying that basically uh, um, an average action film made by a guy will get a lot less flack than a average rom-com made by women. You know, that it's mm. and, and, and whether that's, you're pigeonholing people to make certain types of movies or you're letting other certain people get away with stuff, whereas you don't with with, with others. It does seem to be a real inequality there. And mm. and looking at TV, um, I think, the, the or, or, or the whole thing, I suppose, there did seem to be a, a, a long period where for women... I remember thinking that they were they were like you had a lot of roles when they were younger, and mm. then a lot of roles when they were older, and that kind of wasteland in the middle where just you never saw them for twenty <laughs> years, and then suddenly they played someone's yeah. gran or something. Yeah, and that seems to be changing. You know, look, yeah, uh, very big, much so. Big Little Lies or something. Yeah. You've got, show, and I suppose that has to do with with reason, um, doing do, doing it, yeah. it, it themselves. But there is starting to change. I think you're getting meatier roles than you used to in that kind of twilight area yeah. where you never saw anything for a while. Well, I mean, so first of all, uh, you're absolutely right about the way that we, we treat sort of female subjects and male subjects and female made films and female led films and male led films. That's one of the problems with criticism being as male dominated as it is. Um, you know, I, the, the example I always give is Twilight is at least as good a film as Transformers. But try getting, <laughs> try getting a man to admit that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, you know, I'm not saying either of them is perfect, but both of them do what they set out to do. So, yeah, yeah. And, and Twilight, true, yeah. arguably with a little bit more flair. Anyway, um, but yeah, I think there is uh, there has been a difference in the way that they're treated and there has been a difference in the room they're given to fail and try again. So, yeah. I mean, even Catherine Bigelow, one of the most successful female directors of, of our era and the only one, as I say, who's won an Oscar, she won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker. She hadn't made a film for six years before The Hurt Locker because K-19 wasn't a hit. I mean, men get more chances than that if yeah. they have something like Point Break under their belt already. Mm -hmm. And she didn't and she had to make the hurt locker and about i think 50p in a packet of crisps and that's what got her back to the top um women don't have that that chance to, to fail and even when they succeed they don't necessarily get the, the credit for their success patty jenkins uh, got charlie theron an oscar for monster mm -hmm. her next film was wonder woman that's 14 years nearly Mm -hmm. You know, Deborah Granite got Jennifer Lawrence a, a, an Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone. It took her 10 years, I think, nearly to make her next film, apart from a documentary in the middle. That's that's not something that you see the men struggling with yeah. so much. They they tend to get chances that the women don't get. And that's what's really frustrating. But yeah, you're right about the, the age gap in terms of acting as well. Um, there was, I did look this up, there was one female Oscar winner in her 50s in the entire 20th century. Now, a couple of now joined her, Sandra Bullock and I think Reese Withers, uh, Reese, sorry, Renee Zellweger had turned 50 when they won um, in this century. But there was one in the entire 20th century. And that is an absolute lack of roles. Mm -hmm. And that's why more women win in their 20s. No, there's one male winner in his 20s ever for Best Actor and a load of women because they're all hired that's when they're young. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that isn't, and actually, it's the same as well. We've spoken to authors as well who, you know, mm. uh, crime, especially female crime authors, are often told use your initials because men yeah. won't buy books, buy yeah. buy crime books that are written by women because they have it in their head that, it, it, well, for whatever reason that they won't, they just won't buy them. It's, well, this it's is it, ridiculous. and it's a true thing in books as well. You know, you see, you hear these women whose books have been marketed as kind of chiclet. Nothing mm. wrong with chiclet, but 
their books didn't really actually fit that category, yeah. mm-hmm. but they were still slapped with the sort of pink cover and the kind of lipstick writing or whatever else, um, because that was how the publishers understood they could sell it. You know, it's a real problem of, and, and you get it with films sometimes where, you know, something like, um, I may be misspeaking here, I think To Die For or something, just because it has a female lead, was marketed a certain way. And actually, it's a really gritty crime drama, mm-hmm. but they, you know, just having a woman in the mix confuses them sometimes and they don't know how to react and then they wonder why the film didn't do well it's like well because it was marketed really badly just completely false advertising you know um but they don't have the they don't always have the skills to put these things together because again there are no women in the room talking about what women actually want to see Mm. and um to switch tracks slightly i'm also going to ask a question that we've asked a lot of authors which is uh, how was it trying to write and launch your book during the world of oh. lockdown that we're finding ourselves in? Um, I, I, it's been weird. Um, I, I mean, it was. It's kind of been helped by the fact that the other two books had really no launch at all. You know, I uh, the, with the first one, I, I actually had to email the publisher and ask had it come out, <laughs> had it been delayed, because I went into my local bookshop and a couple of times and didn't see it, and I wasn't expecting it to be a window display or anything, but I thought you know it'd be there somewhere, and I couldn't find it. Um, so it actually took me about a month to notice that it had definitely been <laughs> until I find it in the bookshop. Anyway, uh, with this one, obviously, it was a bigger deal. And I knew that it was coming. And we did the book of the week thing for Radio 4. And I recorded that. And that was a that was a huge deal. Uh, so that was really, really exciting. But um, and people have been incredibly kind about it. And I've done lots of interviews and, and podcasts and so on, which has been great. And I've really enjoyed that. And I think I've probably enjoyed that more than I would have done kind of real life events, mm-hmm. which are much more stressful <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, like I, I was running past my local bookshop yesterday and sort of thinking it's kind of a shame because by the time the shops open again, you know, it will have been out for months. It'll be old news. And I don't know if it'll ever have that moment in the window or that moment on the table that it might have had. And and that was kind of that kind of made me blue for a minute. But I think really I've been very, very lucky in terms of its reception and in terms of um people you know being willing to pick it up and and take a chance on buying it online and hope that it turns out okay so um so yeah i i think uh, given the circumstances i think i've been really really lucky and uh, are you planning another book at the moment um (laughs) i swore to my editor never again by the time i finished (laughs) of course i i don't have any particular plans right now i i I really do need to kind of decompress a little bit and and read for fun i had about a year Mm -hmm. of just reading film books and while i love film i also love fiction and i was i mean just jonesing for a fix at the end i mean the new um harry dresden book came out which is a fantasy series i don't know if either of you guys have read it they're they're kind of my crack cocaine i mean they're i'm not saying they're healthy or good for you they're certainly not high literature but i love them i absolutely love them and so the new harry dresden came out and i read it in about three hours and it was like a hit straight to my veins it was incredible so um so yeah so i, I think i need a bit still a bit more of a kind of decompression uh, before i tackle anything else but hopefully i'll get to do another one someday hopefully this one will have done as well enough that somebody will let me um but yeah, just just trying to kind of get my head back on at the moment. And would you ever want to try your hand at writing something else, like a script or a comic or a fiction? I did actually write a, a very short, small comic last year. Um, again, somebody got in touch with me completely out of the blue and said, would you like to do this? And I was completely terrified and did it anyway. It was for a compilation called Smash. And it was about a character called Thunderbolt the Avenger. No relation to those Avengers. Um 
and it was really, really terrifying and very difficult and wonderful and, and thrilling. Um, but I was deliberately, on, in that case, trying to do a very kind of traditional comic book story because I felt like that was the... I'd, I'd basically been asked to do a character's origin story, so I felt like that was kind of almost the respectful way to do it was to sort of do a quite traditional... hit those traditional beats. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it, that gave me a sort of framework to work with. But I would like to try something else in future yeah i i have a few ideas i have in no way learned to develop those into full stories so i think there's a long road ahead of me if i if i want to go into fiction of any kind in just kind of learning how to put those stories together because as you guys well know from all these interviews it's it's kind of a completely different set of muscles and yeah. i really don't know if i have them i mean the gyms have been closed for a really long time so. <laughs> you know what might help you a nice that? notebook. Hey. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? So I think you've already told us possibly. <laughs> well, no, I, that was a while ago. I'm now reading one called uh, Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo, um, which is a, a fancy book, but she's got a new series come out on Netflix and I try to be prepared for these big series is so i have like a framework to discuss it when we when we talk about okay. it on the emperor podcast or, or whatever else so so yes yeah, so i'm reading that right now i quite like a bit of fantasy and sci-fi i have to say i also recently read and this is a bit more filming but it wasn't about women so it's okay um close encounters diary oh, right. uh, by bob balaban from the making of close encounters which is kind of nice. delightful so that's um yeah that's just from sort of history and it's been fun reading about young Spielberg trying desperately to get this insane huge movie made Excellent. Um, while everything conspires against him so yeah I'm just, I'm just really enjoying just not reading anybody's biography and anybody's upsetting <laughs> accounts of me too and and hopefully I'll get back to proper you know books at some point in the future and what about the last film that you watched uh last night I watched a league of their own because I was oh. talking about Tom Hanks today uh, the last new film I watched was uh, the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, which what is four hours long. Thoughts? Um, it is better than the theatrical version. I still don't very much like it. Um, <laughs> the Snyder fans don't like me either, though, so that works out <laughs> pretty well for everybody. Um, but but it's it's a fascinating it's fascinating that it, it exists and if you read mm -hmm. up on the history of that film it is it is really fascinating that it exists so if you're interested in behind the scenes Hollywood shenanigans and or superhero movies then it's worth a look but uh, on its own merits it's four hours yeah <laughs> yeah we've, uh, we've and it finishes on a cliffhanger yeah I read that as well but I think yeah we've 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 said before that like it's a uh, it's a film that I'm not expecting to enjoy in the sense that I enjoy most films, but I'm really excited to watch it just because it's such an unusual thing to be made mm. and the whole history behind it and stuff, it's quite fascinating. And how often do you get to see someone else just have a second crack at something? And so, yeah, I'm very interested to watch it yeah. over yeah. a couple of days, probably, I think. Yeah, I think that's probably why. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Um, uh, well, I have to confess, at lunchtime today, we watched the uh, James McAvoy episode of Bake Off um, <laughs> for, for well, I'll be honest, James McAvoy and baking related reasons. Um, <laughs> but I, I personally don't think it should be legal to sh show handsome men competently <laughs> before the watershed. But there you go. Um, uh, in terms of the last TV, sh like proper TV show I've been watching, I've been watching... Uh, 
what have I been watching? I've been watching Star Trek Lower Decks, oh, which yeah. I'm very much enjoying. Yeah. Um, I have loved the last few years kind of, you know, reinvigoration of Star Trek on the small screen because it gives them so much more scope to play with interesting ideas, which has been just great. So, um, so yeah, more of that, please. And uh, I don't know the last, I'm just trying to think about the last show that really, really blew me away. And of course, my mind is going completely blank. There has been something recently, though. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, it's funny. Lordex was I really enjoyed it as well, and it's something that, um, in some ways, is so different than what's come before. But in a lot of ways, was so familiar, especially <laughs> yeah. the TNG stuff. It was yeah. the most kind of familiar trick that's come out in the last it's, few years. I thought it's weirdly respectful while yeah, completely exactly. taking the piss. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. kind of wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, and the the very very last thing we always do is a quick fire. One division. Or... That's oh, the other division. thing that oh, yeah. blew me away. Yes, recently. that was yeah. excellent. Yeah, yeah. We enjoyed it. it was nice to see Marvel do something a little bit different. Yeah. Although, as I said to Tarek, I I didn't realise that the end of there were post credit scenes. In, oh, I mean, maybe cool. I should because it's Marvel. <laughs> but but there were, we did watch the first episode. We waited through all the credits, nothing. Mm. So then, and Disney for some reason, Disney Plus, it has like six minutes of credits. Oh, the credits are so yeah. long. So <laughs> so we just started stopping it, and then the last episode, the White Vision turns up, and I'm like, "Where's this come from?" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, but it was good. Sorry, Tarek, you were going to say. Yeah, yeah. So the the very last thing is a quick fire, either or, and there's okay. no right or wrong answer. Part okay. One. Um, but the first one will be uh, Marvel or DC. Marvel. Marvel. Yeah, it's 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 not. Cl- I I do like a lot of DC characters. I'm a big Superman fan, but um, I like the the more relatable. Uh, human level heroes of Marvel not least because when all the DC gang get together there is no realistic opponent for them um, because they are all basically gods and I just feel like I like a bit more light and shade in my heroes Fair enough. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Trek but I like both but Trek Early bird or night owl? Early bird, absolutely I'm in bed by 10 o'clock if I can <laughs> Um TV or cinema? Cinema. But I love TV as well, but cinema, always. Yep. And the uh, very last one, real book or ebook? I'm a little bit format ag- agnostic. I'm going to say real book um, just because I love the feel and the heft of them. But I mean, I read really fast. So if I'm traveling, like a Kindle is a lifesaver mm. because I cannot physically carry enough books for a two-week holiday for example like I've, i literally once brought half mm-hmm. a suitcase full of books and i still went through them all you're kind of on the fence here helen i'm gonna have to I'm, no I'm, I'm saying real side. books i'm saying real books wow. i'm just saying that ebooks are very very useful in their unfortunately place. that's the wrong answer i'm afraid the correct <laughs> answer is ebook but that's okay you're almost there it's fine <laughs> tarot's book coming out on ebook that's, oh that's well that. the ebooks all the way exactly So I think I've worked out, Tarek, what my equivalent of the real book, ebook uh, failure is. <laughs> Whereas that? everyone prefers a real book to an ebook, and you've lost that battle a long time ago. The mentalist. I, I, I have clearly lost the Marvel against DC uh, every time we ask a guest. I don't, apart from maybe a, Ian Dunn, I remember like DC more than Marvel, but uh, apart from that, it was. It's often Marvel, and I think that's probably because of the movies. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the movies, uh, and also the comics, definitely skew a bit younger, a bit more. uh, 
the DC, I'm, I like DC Comics fair enough, but um, I do find them, well, you're right, it probably is the film stuff. The, the film stuff really hasn't done as well as it should. And it does annoy me as a comic book fan. It annoys me because there's no excuse for that. They've got the exact same history of comics. They've got the great stories there. Well, I, I always think that actually DC have the biggest character. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. It's harder to think. You know, I, to me, yeah, certainly... Yeah. Those are the three biggest comic well, look at, characters. Look at Thor, Guardians of the Galaxy, Iron yeah, Man. Exactly. No one knew who, who they no, were exactly. 10 years ago. You know, so it's, 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 it's recent, all, they've come back. Um, although I don't... Uh, Helen said there, the, the, the DC heroes are too powerful and, you know, they can't be beaten almost. But I don't... Like, I think there's equivalence in everything. You know, Superman is not dissimilar to sort of Captain Marvel in... Yeah, absolutely. Know, so absolutely. it's not so much the, the powers that they have... Um, I guess there's just the way, certainly I think the way they've been portrayed on film um, the Marvel Zack characters Snyder's are definitely more relatable, yes indeed, indeed. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Zack Snyder's portrayal of everything in black and Batman shooting guns and it's very you know, it's very visual and it looks kind of nice, it's like a big music video and which is fine but there's no real substance to them it's, it's and it's yeah. lacking the character stuff that I feel you need because without the character stuff, it's you're just watching like a Transformers movie. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, I I, I, th- but, I think they're better than Transformers movies. I, like I I I have, as you know, more of a soft spot for them because I like the characters more. Um, and I think I like I quite liked his take on Justice League. Um, it's certainly better than the the, the Joss Whedon version, but. It was certainly too long as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's yeah. It, I, did, it, I was it was indulgent and it had yeah. scenes that weren't necessary. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, it, it, that when you've got, as you said, eighty years of stories to pick from, I don't understand why they can't make better films of these. Kevin Feige needs to jump ship. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> that's absolutely nothing to do with writing, but uh, <laughs> a long tangent about uh, our views on comics uh, and how I always seem to lose that particular, <laughs> that particular either or question. Um, but I thought, I thought it was really interesting what Helen was saying. And it's something we've heard from other guests as well, which is that you can hone your craft. You can be as good at your craft of writing as possible. But at some point you also have to get lucky to get that break to move forward with it, I think. And I think that's true. I think, you know, it's not just Helen that said that lots of authors and screenwriters have said that to us as well. It is that, unknowable element that that is something that you just have to hope for but I suppose there is an element of the more you write the more chance you're giving yourself of being lucky absolutely I think I think you're totally right that luck is a part of it and I think all you can do as a writer is just keep try to increase your chances as much as possible you know write as much as you can put as much stuff out there apply for stuff like the capital crimes competition yes you know you can you can enter the right agents it's it's about creating those chances as much as you can and then hoping that little bit of luck kicks in along the way but yeah you know what's the uh you miss 100 percent the shots you don't take exactly very true good sports, sports metaphor. metaphor for you like that's good isn't it yeah. i read that in a in a book somewhere <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, anyway, thanks very much to Helen for coming on to the podcast. Uh, really appreciate her taking the time. And if you haven't uh, checked out Women versus Hollywood, uh, do pick that up. And we've got another great guest next week. You have another 
fantastic guest next week. We are chatting with David Nichols, who uh, is a very famous British author. His first novel, Started for Ten, was a little bit of a sleeper hit, perhaps. It was a, you know, made minor, yeah. minor ways. And then <laughs> uh, Understudy, One Day Us, and his latest Sweet Sorrow. You know, he's a pretty massive writing. Yeah. Actually, before we chat to him, I hadn't really appreciated how much screenwriting he'd done as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he, he's uh, a master of both trades, uh, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. And um, we really talked to him about the differences in writing each of those different formats and how he how he came to... Because he started out actually in the world of film and screenwriting and TV and then moved into novel writing after that. And they are, I think he views them as two separate things, but connected in a, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So it, it's a really interesting chat we had with David. So please do check that out next week. And as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to podcast at rightq.co.uk or we're always sitting by the Twitter <laughs> machine just waiting for anything to pop up that's at right underscore gear. Just feel free to make our day with a little message for us. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, if you also want to make our day, you can leave a review or rating for the Marco, podcast. Mark would genuinely not sleep for about a week. This <laughs> would be the highlight of this week. No, we do we do get people leaving reviews and ratings for us on That's true. Uh, Apple Podcasts. I told my parents to, to do that. For <laughs> on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen to, uh, then that really uh, helps us stay in the rankings and continue to get great guests like Helen O'Hara or David Nichols. But anyway, we've rambled on enough this week, I think. So uh, we'll cut it off there. Uh, I hope you all have a great week and uh, we'll see you next episode. See you later.